Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Our gracious heaven, heavenly Father, you are a good God. You give us what we need when we need it in the amount that we need. Father, you are creator and maker and sustainer of earth. You set the stars and the planets in their orbits above. You dug the foundation of the earth. You filled the earth with good things, creeping things and flying things. And Father, you created man and woman very good in your image and called them to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Father, but we confess that rather than trusting in you, the source of all life and goodness and hope and beauty, we traded infinite glory and infinite satisfaction with relationship with God for fleeting satisfactions and desires and lusts of the flesh that leave us wanting and waiting. Father, we confess, though, as we see the emptiness of this rope of sand that we cling to, we realize that we need you. You are our only hope in life and death. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a gracious and kind and compassionate God who because you so love the world sent your only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him, his work, his righteousness, his substitutionary death and his physical resurrection and victory over sin and death and hell should not perish as they deserve, as they had chosen, as they had clung to but have eternal life that they did not earn, that they did not deserve, that they did not desire, but because Christ died while we were yet sinners. Father, I pray that as we cling to the hope of the promise of the gospel, you would send your spirit to stir us and to convict us and to encourage us and to make us more like Christ in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, in our jobs as we further your act of creation, as we serve our fellow man, as we provide for our 
family and our needs, we recognize it is you who guides us and strengthens us and empowers us to do so. May we be faithful to pour your words into our hearts, to plant your word deep into our hearts, and pray that your spirit would cause it to grow and bring forth fruit. Father, I pray that as we hear your word this morning, that we would be changed, that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to love, quickened by your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You would be seated. One of the um, important parts of a sermon are the introductions and the conclusions where you um, put out the hook and you grab a person's attention and you um, introduce them to that biblical truth. It's usually the last thing you do, but it's something you are thinking about throughout the week. Sometimes there are great weeks when you're like, yes, that's a fabulous introduction. There are weeks like this where the introduction never comes. And you, like John Calvin at times, would just open up the word and say, thus says the Lord. Today, I don't have a snazzy introduction that I would love. Um, I apologize, Scott, if you would not tell anybody in the preaching class that your pastor did not have a hook or a uh, that. And, and in fact, I must admit that um, because I split the text the way I did, I don't even have a new big idea. Uh, there's the joke that the pastor, when he went to his church for the first time, preached the sermon, and the next week preached the same sermon, the next week preached the same one, and the deacon said, are you going to preach another sermon? He says, I will when you get the first one right. And um, I am not indicting you at all this week. Most likely, I didn't get last week's right, so I need another shot at it. But in reality... Um, we are looking at verses 12 through 17, which is an umbrella of how we are to live like Jesus. We have been called early in the chapter to put off the flesh and its lusts and its passions and desires and put that to death, to say no to it. But with every sin that we say no to, we also say yes to Christ. And so in verses 12 through 17, we are saying yes to Christ by living like him and living for him, and living by his power. So in review, with that being said, we have last week's points, and I will actually add new points. I promise, give me a couple minutes. But I want to remind you of this text that we are, this two-week, two-part series, if you will, on how we live like Christ. We live like Christ by putting on his character. The life that you have received as Christians, united by faith to the cross of Christ, has imparted you with a new spiritual sense. I used the example last week of those who have received new cochlear implants that for the first time in their life, they are able to hear the voices of their children, of the spou their spouses, to hear the, the sweetness and the melody of music. When you are born again, when you have received uh, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, you are given a new spiritual sense, a new character of Christ that now you see the whole world. And Paul tells us to put on that character of Christ. 
And that character of Christ enables us now to live in the unity of Christ, to bear with one another, even those who are irritating and have personalities or weaknesses or make silly choices or say silly things. We can bear with one another. We can forgive one another as our Father has forgiven us, as Christ has forgiven us. The new standard, the gold standard of forgiveness. How can we not forgive those our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, that Christ has forgiven. And so because of that, because of this new life that we have to live like Christ, we can put on the unity that brings together um, different ethnicities, different cultures, different socioeconomic uh, factors in people's life as this big, beautiful, glorious, colorful family of God from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And then we're also called to put on Christ's peace. And this is not the inner peace that we have. I had a peace about it. But this is actually the peace because we have a great king who reigns, who protects us and guides us and rules over us and gives us what we need when we need it in the amount that we have. So with that being said, I did do some work this week. So you can have points four and points five. I earned my paycheck this week. And you see this morning in verses 16 and 17, we will see the fourth and fifth aspect of what it means to live like Christ, to have new spiritual life that is reflected and, and uh, flows forth from a life that has been changed. We see, first of all, that we dwell in Christ's words, verse 16, and then verse 17, that we honor Christ's name, verse 17. So as we look at point four, the fourth aspect of what it means to live like Christ, we see that those who live like Christ dwell in Christ's word. They dwell in Christ's word. In the beginning of verse 16, the first phrase, um, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When Denise and I were in uh, school, we were poor college kids. So we were always on the lookout for a cheap date, somewhere we didn't have to spend a lot of money, that, but we could talk and be together. And one of the most memorable dates for me was on Tuesdays, the Art Institute of Chicago is free. And so what we would do is we would go there, and um, if you know anything about the Art Institute of Chicago, which I really didn't, I did some research, they are well known for their renowned collection of 19th century French easy for me to say, impressionistic paintings. And, it, and you might you'd be like, I have no idea what that means. Bear with me. You had works like Monet's Water Lilies or his Stacks of Wheat. You have Renoir's Lunch at the Restaurants and the Two Sisters. You have Degas's Millinery Shop and his, yellow, his painting of Yellow Dancers. And that doesn't even mention the uh, various works like American Gothic that are in the rooms and uh, hang on the walls of the institutes. A Sunday at La Grand Jatte or the old guitars by Picasso. Every room at the Art Institute is rich with work and art painted by the hands of the very best, the masters of art. Now, I, I admit I am not much of an art connoisseur, and to be quite frank, the only reason I go went it was not to look at the art, but it was to look at Denise. But I used it, and I didn't have to pay very much to be able to do that. Um, it, this is 
Anybody who walks in the rooms of the Art Institute is overwhelmed by the richness of the art that is, that is collected there. Ocean Park, this is exactly how the Word of God should be in the church. Paul, in these words, in verse 16, exhorts the believers who have their life in Christ, this newfound identity, he calls them, he says in the beginning of 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Like an art institute that is overflowing with beautiful paintings, like a palace that is overflowing with treasure, the body of Christ should be saturated by the gospel. Notice the phrase, this is an unusual phrase that Paul uses, the word of Christ, which this is essentially the message of who Christ is and what he has done. This is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel that he has already said in a few chapters earlier, chapter 1, verse 28, if you're there, or you can flip back a page, or you can look across on the other side of your Bible, chapter 1, verse 28, the, the apostles, Paul, was doing what? Him, Christ, we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. We were teaching, we were allowing the Word of God to dwell richly in the lives of the apostles. And what was the goal? What was the, um, the, the desire for the people of God? That they would be present mature in Christ. There was a reason that the gospel was being proclaimed is that they could live like Christ and resemble Christ and think like Christ and act like Christ and speak like Christ, that the gospel would work by the power of the Holy Spirit to change lives. Proclaiming Christ is who Christ is and what he has done is the result results in the believers growing to Christ-like maturity. A maturity that only happens as the word of God gradually calibrates and conforms the heart and mind to look like Jesus. But how does this happen? How does the Word of God dwell richly as art dwells richly in the Art Institute of Chicago? How does the Word of God not be just a meaningless window dressing of the church, but something that guides and saturates and molds and conforms and, and leads the people of God into Christ-like maturity and ultimately to glorify our God who has saved us from the wretchedness and the hopelessness of our sin? The two-way Paul tells us is this. Teaching and admonishing on one hand, and he says singing. And some of you may not think singing. Why singing? Give me a few minutes. We'll get to that. But first we start in 16, teaching and admonishing in wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Brothers and sisters, the gospel, the word of Christ is not a garnish on the side. It is the entree in the middle. Like Fancy restaurants like Ruth Chris, they don't crowd their plate with um, mashed potatoes and green beans and casseroles. They put the steak out there. Now you pay for that steak. 
And they are, not, they are proud of that steak. And that is the sole focus on that plate. Brothers and sisters, the steak, the meat of the word of Christ, the gospel, should be our focus, our desire, our passion, our delight, and our joy. It is not a garnish, it is the entree. It guides our worship, it guides our fellowship, it stirs our evangelism. When the word of God is relegated to the sidelines or pushed into the shadows, the people of God, the church, slowly starves themselves to death spiritually. The regular practice of the church, Paul tells us, to allow the word of God to dwell richly in us is to teach and admonish one another. Now, we have to define our terms a little bit. Teaching is the positive presentation of Christian truth, doctrine, what, who Christ is, what he has done. This is what that is, teaching. And the flip side, admonishing, is the negative warnings about the danger of straying from the truth. The, tr the gospel cannot dwell richly in the body of Christ if we don't know the way of God and we don't know the dangers of straying from that way. Probably one of the best known and best examples of this is Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Where, Paul, uh, not Paul, David is writing and he's setting that Psalm 1 is setting the stage for all the book of Psalms. And he said, blessed is the man, this is admonishing and teaching, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Watch out for the counsel of the wicked. Who um, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffing. This is admonishing. David is saying, beware of this. They will lead you astray as vanity fair, as the giant despair, as the um, worldly wise men led pilgrim or Christian astray in pilgrim's progress. Beware of such things. But it's not just simply uh, no. It's not simply just warning, admonishing, but it's also teaching. Notice what he says, but his delight, not his duty, his delight, his passion, his craving, his desire is in the law of the Lord. God's revelation of his righteousness and how we live in response to that. And on his law, he what? Meditates day and night. Meditating is not just a little verse that we read when it pops up. On our phones it's not just a passing tweet that we read or or some a quick thing that we get out of the way in the morning meditating is seeking and savoring after Jesus Christ and his revelation it takes time it takes work it takes priority it takes all our desires to be able to do that and the blessing of Psalm 1 is found in the fact that he delights in the teaching of Scriptures and he heeds the admonishment of Scriptures. Ocean Park, the Word of God is not a curiosity. It's not an interest that we dabble in to find some secret code or secret message or secret prophecy that nobody else knows that's going to open up the world. It is not a weapon that we wield on those we don't like. It is a delight that we savor because it reveals to us the heart of God and it is a lighthouse that warns us of the rocks that lay just below the water that we can't see. Therefore, when the, word, when the people of God gather, the reason that we are here 
is we are here to experience God, to hear from God, to make much of God and give Him His worth. Therefore, we gather around the Word of God to sing, to pray, to read, to listen, to proclaim the Word of God, to teach it that we may understand it to heed its warnings, to submit to its authority, to integrate the wisdom that it gives us, to translate the principles that it gives us for life into our daily life. The Word of God should be the wind that fills our sails. It should be the tracks on which our train rides. It should be the trellis on which the vine of our life grows. Brothers and sisters, this is why I preach the way I preach. I once had somebody come up to me, and I don't know how you would have responded to this. They say, we read too much scripture. And I said, I'm going to repeat this, and does this sound bad? We read too much scripture. We talk about scripture too much. We too much. The problem is, we live in a day of relevant self-help sermons, a la Dr. Phil teaching us, Five steps to be a better dad, three ways to deal with disappointment, sermon series on literally how to have the best relationships ever. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you gentlemen to be better dads. I want you to be able to deal with disappointments. I want you to have the best relationships ever, whatever that means. But that cannot happen until you know the heart of of God as he has revealed himself through the power of the Holy Spirit through the words of the gospel. You cannot know God without teaching and admonishing the word of God. When the word of God dwells richly in you, the Holy Spirit begins to change how you think, change how you speak, change how you act because you know the word of God. It, it, the Word of God tempers your emotions. It guides your steps. It shapes your responsibilities in your relationship. It deposes you from the throne of your heart and it enthrones Christ there. It reveals the sins that are hidden deep in within the recesses of your heart and with the skill of a surgeon's scalpel. It removes that skin that you may find wholeness and health that you might be a better dad because you know the our ultimate heavenly father. That you may be free from uh, worries because you know we have a heavenly father who takes care of us far greater than he takes care of the sparrows and the lilies of the valley. How your relationships are not self-centered, me-first relationships, but they are like Christ who laid his life down for the church. Ocean Park, I devote myself to teaching and admonishing God's word each week so that the word of God may dwell richly in my heart and dwell richly in your heart and bring us both to maturity that we would look like Jesus. But that's not just my job. That's your job as well. It doesn't say find a good pastor who preaches every week expositionally from the text and show you how the text is relevant and loves you. It says teach and admonishing what? One another. Our job as a body of Christ is to saturate ourselves with the Word of God that we teach and admonish one another. 
that we love and encourage one another, that we turn and teach, that we remind ourselves of our weakness and Christ's strength, our inabilities and Christ's abilities, that we encourage the weak-hearted, discouraged and confused by the promises that we have in Christ, that we correct the wandering in their waywardness and that the immoral in their rebellion. This is not the job of the pastor to do it all. This is the collective, mutual teaching and admonishing one another that happens in the body of Christ, that we may together be more like Jesus. And that together in this journey, while the Lord has brought us together in this season of our lives, that we would be faithful that none of us fails to obtain the grace of God in our lives. What can we do unless you all look after one another? How shall we ever go on unless in addition to preaching there should be continual mutual instruction going on, wise and joyful and cheerful, accepted in a kind and loving and generous spirit? God fills you with the word of Christ, Spurgeon says, that you may thus teach and admonish one another. Ocean Park, the Word of God dwells richly within us when we teach and admonish one another and then also when we lift our voices together in song. Notice that the Word of God dwells in us when we teach and admonish, but we also sing with thanksgiving. Music is the language of the soul. You sing when you're in love. You sing when you are happy. You sing a, a, a song. When, when you hear a song, when you are broken and weary, it brings comfort to the ache that is in your soul. I believe this is why musicals are so popular. Tevier could have simply explained that the customs of the Jews in Russia um, brought balance to his people, but what did he do instead? He sang, tradition, tradition. And he brought that together in song, and it was powerful and it was moving. Mary Poppins could have sa said simply, medicine is bitter, take a little sugar. But what did she say? Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. You see why I'm not doing the music leading? And then probably one of the stirring one is Fantine in Les Mis, as she was dying, could have said, simply said, I have lost hope. But she sang the moving words, I dreamed a dream, and now that dream is gone. Music gives voice to ideas and feelings and emotions from the depths of our soul that simply words cannot express. I believe this is why Paul wrote at the latter half of verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you, and what are we to do? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Ocean Park, Christians are people who sing because the gospel has imparted us the melody of thankfulness in our hearts. It's not a question of whether a Christian has a good voice, because clearly I have demonstrated that's not the case, but, but whether God has given them the song of redemption to sing. 
If you have and know that song of redemption that is in your heart, how can you keep from singing? How do we sing? Paul shows us. He says psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We don't know the exact definitions of exactly what these mean, but it is likely when he says psalms, he means that songs that derive from Scripture Songs that we have been given in the book of Psalms, in the prophets, some of the words of Moses throughout the Pentateuch. These are the songs that guide our our worship as we sing the words of Scripture. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Those, my friends, are the words of scriptures, the psalms, the songs of the church that have been blessed for us for millennials to sing praises and the song of redemption. We sing hymns, songs that praise and adore the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Songs like holy, holy, holy. That probably could be a psalm too because that's out of Isaiah 6. As uh, we have these sing these songs, the richness throughout the generations that we make much of Christ and much of God and much of the Holy Spirit. And then spiritual songs are spontaneous songs that are prompted by the Holy Spirit that we sing. What do we sing? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But how do we sing them? Paul writes, with thankfulness in our hearts. The church has been blessed with rich traditions of songs and hymns and spiritual songs from generations of Christians, from Isaac Watts to Bach to even, uh, um, uh, who am I going to say? The Gettys. We're going to go with the Gettys. I I couldn't, my mind went blank on the other people. But the Lord has blessed writers with music and song and creativity to make much of who God is, driven by the thankfulness that is in their hearts. Songs that are motivated by what Christ has done for them. This morning we sang All Creatures of Our God and King, which celebrates the magnificent power of God in creation and new creation, in redeeming a people who will sing His praises. We sing all hail the power of Jesus' name, which confesses the power and authority that Christ has over creation and over the new creation because of the cross and the empty tomb. We sang on Jordan's stormy banks, which anticipates, looks back to the exodus of of the Israel and looks forward to the rest that we will have that is provided by Christ. We sang the gospel song, which is the basic truth of the gospel that you can sing as a lullaby to your infant, or you can sing at the graves, at the, the, the deathbed of a brother and sister who is about to go into the arms of Christ. Our songs and our hymns and our spiritual songs remind us of the wonderful truth that the gospel proclaims about the work of Christ. His power in our hearts to receive the word of God and an encouragement that we receive and give towards weary brothers and sisters who sing beside us. Ocean Park, you may not have a very good voice, but you have a beautiful song to sing. It is with thankfulness in our hearts that the words of Christ dwell richly in us 
as we remind ourselves by teaching and admonishing and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another that we may, that who ha- are alive in Christ may live like Christ. We are at a point of transition in our church. We have said goodbye to Grant and Stacy, who the Lord has led to South Carolina, and we wait with anticipation and at times a little desperation who is coming next. And though we don't know who that may be, we sing. We sing if Jenny's the only one banging on the cajon, and we will sing if a choir of angels comes and joins us on a Sunday morning. Why? Because we have a song that we have been sung. We proclaim the word of God. We proclaim the love of Christ as demonstrated on the cross, and we trust them. I promise you, I know the worry of a pastor of who is coming and who will help us, but I know that we have faithful people, and Jenny and Scott and Olivia and Larry this morning, and we're even going to get some help from other churches are sending some troops over with a guitar to help us sing. But no matter if it's just me croaking it out on the stage, we have a great song to sing because we have a great Savior. The beauty of the gospel is not the beautiful melody, it's the rich truth that has set us free from the power of sin and has given us the hope of glory that we have. So as Christians, we are called to put on the character of Christ, put on his unity, put on his peace, dwell in his word, and then also the fifth point overall, honor Christ's name in verse 17. When I was in high school and in college as well, I played basketball, and in high school I played soccer. And each game I would wrap my ankle or my wrist or whatever ailment I had at the time with some athletic tape. And I wrote this reference on my, um, on my athletic tape. Colossians 3, 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This was not a way to coerce Him into blessing my game, helping me dunk, which... The only time I dunked, I told my son, is I had the opportunity and I shanked it in the game. I could dunk otherwise. I remind him of that, too. It wasn't to coerce God into victory or some supernatural ability to reject the layups of my opponents, but it was a reminder of how I played the game of basketball mattered. When I stepped on the court, I represented Christ When I uh, shot the ball, I represented Christ. When I screamed at my opponent or complained to the right, to the ref, I represented Christ. Whether I lost or whether I won, I represented Christ. Little did I know at the time that I had chosen the most comprehensive commandment in all of Scripture to remind me to whom that I belonged. Ocean Park, if you are in Christ, this verse is to be the banner over your life. These three simple words, word and deed, serve as the most comprehensive reminder that nothing is exempt from the service and the honor of Christ's name. Notice what it says. We represent Christ. 
Whether you know it or not, you are Christ's representation to the world. The very words that he gave the apostles in the beginning of Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come unto you, and you will be my what? My witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That word witness is actually the same word for martyr in the Greek. Your life is no longer your own. It has been laid down at the feet of Christ and it belongs to him now. We are to be his witnesses in word. Everything that passes from your mouth, even in an unguarded, off-the-record moment, we are to do in the name of our Lord Jesus. When you're driving to work, when you're watching your kids at a sporting event, when you're hanging out with your friends, when you think that nobody else can hear you but the person that you are with, everything is to honor the name of Jesus. Deed. Everything you do represents the name of Christ to a watching world. Whether it be preaching, teaching, eating, exercising, driving, cleaning house, shopping, visiting with friends, working, play at basketball, football, volleyball, or watching it being played. Whether it be manual labor, political activity, raising a family, spending your money, writing a letter, cooking a meal, or walking a dog. As a whole, Christians don't have a lot of commands compared to the hundreds that are listed out in the Old Testament. We have a command. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is huge. The scope of the honor of Christ and the name of Christ is not limited to an hour, hour and 20 minutes, hour and 30 minutes if I get long-winded here at church. The scope of the honor that you who are in Christ are to give to Christ is everything. Every word and every deed represents Christ and is designed to honor him. But not only do we represent Christ to a world that is watching, but we are rejoicing in Christ. Not only do we honor Christ in our life, but we give thanks to God because of the work of Jesus he has sent us to do. In other words, because Jesus took my punishment and my penalty on the cross, I am not getting the wrath I deserve. Therefore, everything I do is designed as a, to praise him. I have this book. Joe Rigney wrote it. I don't know if... Uh, Natalie, he, he goes to your church back in Bethlehem, I think. He's, um, so I don't know if you all know him. Um, Robert gave this to me the last time I saw him before his death. This book is amazing. It's in the library. Get it. Work through it. It'll, it'll stretch you a little bit. But he, he lays out in this book how our life is direct Godwardness and inward Godwardness. And I want to put two, a couple quotes up here because I think it is so valuable as we live out and honor Christ's name. Inward Godwardness, or I'm sorry, direct Godwardness involves conscious, intentional focus on God Himself. When we sit down in devotional readings of Scripture, private prayer, corporate worship, thanksgiving, saying grace before meals, confession of sin, and so on, where we are directing, 
We are laying aside our concerns of this world, and we are focusing on God, who He is and what He has done. Thankfulness, adoration, confession, supplication, we are directing our gaze and our attention towards heaven. But on the other side, there is indirect Godwardness that involves a subconscious focus on God while engaging in the activities of this world that the world and, and um, that we have. I think I said that right. The world that reveals him at every point. Let me give you an example. It is our dutiful delight to be able to sing, to surf, to grapple in jujitsu, to sew, to knit, to fish, to build things with wood, to paint, to run, to jump, to play football and volleyball, to study, to serve, to take Sunday afternoon naps, amen? Read great literature, eat fish tacos, to be able to eat barbecue, to watch a sunrise on the beach, to teach our children to read, to enjoy cold ice cream on a hot Sunday or summer afternoon, to listen to good music, to take photographs of beautiful things, to ride a bike, to tickle our children, to go to the zoo and see fascinating things, to laugh with our friends. We all do that indirectly as a praise and a glory of our great God because we did not wake up in hell and judgment that we deserve, but we receive the mercy and grace of God. So when we do all those things, we then enjoy these good gifts and then stop and say, thank you, God, that you are a good God and you give good things to your children. Rigney continues, he says, if we are properly integrating our joy in God and our delight in his gifts, then our enjoyment of the gifts ought to enhance our love for God himself. And our love for God himself ought to enhance and increase our enjoyment of the gifts. Our God is an extravagant father who gives good gifts. And when we receive those good gifts, relationships, and taste, and uh, senses that we engage in, we say, thank you, God, for not giving me what I deserve because of Christ. We give thanks to God the Father through Christ because of Christ, who he is and what he has done. Ocean Park, as we go through the day-to-day -day rhythm of life, we don't need to be consumed with whether we're having too much fun in this world. We're Christians. We shouldn't smile. Stop it. We're Christians. We should smile and rejoice because we have a good God who gives good things, and the greatest gift that we have is Jesus Christ who freed us from our greatest enemy, which is sin, and provides and delivers us from our lesser enemies and to be able to give us what we need extravagantly and beautifully. And we say, thank you, Jesus. Your love has... Um, Your love has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once an enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. And if you recognize those words, it's because we sing those words with thankfulness on our heart to the glory of our God because of the work of Jesus Christ. We have the pleasure of going through life thinking how much can I... Um, how much 
can I make of Christ in everything I have do, done, because, that everything I do, because he enables me to enjoy the mercies and grace of our Heavenly Father. How can I rejoice, Christians? Think this. How can I rejoice and give thanks to God in everything I do? Let me give you an example of this. This summer, we went down as a family to Daytona Lagoon, and we saw Ty Curry, who manages the water park there. It's fabulous. Go down, support Tim, have a good time there. Now, as we were getting checked in at the cash register, um, Ty looked at me and he said, see those girls over there? And they were ringing people in and making change for games and stuff like that. He says, they're from Crew. Uh, you may know it, they were formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ. And what they do, they had come down from all around the country, they think these girls were from South Carolina, they had come down to Daytona to work a job during the day, 8 to 4, something like that, and at night they would go to um, mission outreaches, they go to teaching time to be able to do this uh, and, and that. And, and they go, they just plug in to jobs throughout the city to work, make a little money, but ultimately to make connections. And Ty looked at me and he said, these crew, crew employees, period, are by far my best employees, and I go out of my way to find them jobs. That, my friends, should be the attitude of that when people look at Christians, they say, I want them at my job because they work hard, they work well, they're honest, they're trustworthy, they don't give up, they don't have a, 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 a bad attitude. They work for the glory of Christ, whether they're selling things, whether they're creating things, whether they're making change for people to play video games. They honor and give thanks to God the Father through the work, because of the work of Jesus Christ. Ocean Park, this is exactly what Paul wants to be said of every Christian. Because I represent Jesus, it changes how I think and I work and I act. I am not my own, but I belong in body and soul to Jesus Christ. Therefore, how I work and speak and study and rest matters. Everything I do, whether it be great or small, I do for the glory of Christ as a response of thanksgiving. So every day, every hour, and every moment of your life, I want you to ask, am I honoring Christ in this? That was a question I asked one of my children this week. As they get older, they're getting more independence. I hate it. Breaks my heart. But I need to do that. And they wanted to do this one thing, and I wasn't too keen on it. But I said they're getting older. They have to choose to follow Christ. And I said in my text, can you honor Christ by doing this activity? There was nothing in the Bible that says don't go do X or don't go do Y. But it was this principle of how do I honor Christ in my actions? And they had to make that choice. Am I going to honor Christ in my life? When my parents' influence and restraints are no longer there, do I have thankfulness in my heart because what has Christ has done to be able to honor Christ in my thought, in my words, in my deeds? Brothers and sisters, it doesn't change when you're 15 and 17. It continues when you're 15 when you're 17. 70, does it, the question is, am I giving thanks to God the Father through Christ in this activity? And if you can't say yes, don't do it. We know that Christ does not simply choose us for himself and send us on our way. 
He empowers us to live for him and to live like him. He gives us his word. He gives us his people. He gives us his spirit, which teaches and rebukes and corrects and trains in righteousness. In a word, he gives us his grace. Grace to see our sinfulness. Grace to see the mercies of Christ. Grace to overcome our sinfulness and weakness. And grace that empowers us to pursue Christ-like living. I pray, Ocean Park, that we will take this verse and plant it deep within our heart, that it may grow and bring forth fruit of good works. May you realize that because of what Christ has accomplished at the cross, it changes everything, every thought, every word, and every deed, every activity, every labor, and every enjoyment. May Christ-like living infuse you with gratitude and thanksgiving as you go into all the world with the light of Christ in order to make him known through your conduct and through the proclaiming of what Christ has done with the conviction that those who are alive in Christ live like Christ by representing Christ and rejoicing in Christ. It's my prayer that as we go, that as people visit, our friends, our neighbors, lost people come into our presence, into our fellowship, into our community, they say that the word of God dwells richly in these people. That they put on the character of Christ, they put on the unity of Christ, they put on the peace of Christ, that their hearts are driven by thankfulness as they represent Christ and honor his name. May that be true in my heart, in your heart, and our hearts. That the world may see our good works and hear the Savior we proclaim and give thanks to God, our Father in heaven.